Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. It's been a week since I did my last podcast. And the reason I waited so long is I was out of town. I was in Vancouver in Canada at a conference. In fact, if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see an interview that I did with Kitco uh, that I did from that conference. And I'm sure probably by next week, we'll be posting my talk from the conference, maybe one or two of the panels uh, that I participated in. So you'll be able to see all that on my YouTube channel. But of course, while I was in Vancouver, you had a lot of the world's financial people convening in Davos, Switzerland including President Donald Trump, who was uh, in Davos and who was basically giving a self-congratulatory speech about how great the U.S. economy was. Now, one of the things where I do agree with Trump is I do not buy into the gloom and doom of the Green New Deal type people that we have this climate change emergency and that we need to embrace socialism as the only solution to saving the world from extinction uh, due to uh, man-made climate change. So I would support uh, the president in uh, much of his statements uh, with respect to, to that issue. But where I disagree strongly with President Trump is his characteristics, or characterization rather, of the U.S. economy, where he's basically making claims that the U.S. economy is experiencing unprecedented economic growth, unprecedented, undeniable prosperity, uh, such that the world has never seen that something is going on right now, some economic boom that nobody has ever experienced that, and you know, which is all nonsense. I mean, Trump obviously knows nothing about American history because to put the last three years in its proper context, this is nothing compared to the Industrial Revolution or what went on you know, during the Gilded Age of American prosperity uh, after the Civil War and before the First World War. Uh, that is the most prosperous period, certainly in U.S. history. Uh, but what's happening now is barely different from the economic experience that we had under Barack Obama, when, of course, Donald Trump said it was like a black hole. I mean, it was the American dream was dead. He now specifically said the American dream is back and it's bigger and better than ever before. I mean, it's not even close to being back, let alone bigger and better. And all of this exists in the mind of Donald Trump, except the Republican Party and Wall Street in general is not refuting it. They are accepting all of this as if it were true. They're basically blessing these statements that we have this booming economy. In fact, one of the statistics that Trump just belted out is he said during the three years that he has been in office, the net worth 
of the bottom half of wage earners, their net worth has increased by 47%. Now, I don't know where the president is getting this statistic that American workers are 47% wealthier as far as their net worth than they were three years ago. First of all, he's talking about the bottom half of wage earners, right? So if you figure out medium wages in the United States, the medium wage is about $25,000 to $30,000. So he's talking about people that earn less than $30,000. And he thinks those people have seen a 47% increase in their net worth. They don't have a net worth. Their net worth is negative. Now, is he saying that it's less negative than it was when he took office? And, you know, and so it's, you know, that much more or less negative. I mean, people who are making $25,000, $30,000 a year, they don't have stock portfolios. They probably don't even own their home. They're a renter. They don't have any financial assets. They have stuff. I mean, they have some clothes. Maybe they have a car, but I mean, that's really not part of their net worth. That stuff's not worth much. But what they do have are lots of liabilities. The bottom half of American wage earners, they have credit card debt. They have auto loans. Maybe they have student loans. They, have, they don't have a big net worth that just went up by 47%. The president thinks that the bottom half of American wage earners have a net worth? No, they don't. They have no idea how negative their net worth actually is. Yes, there are some people who have seen an increase in their net worth because they have stock portfolios, right? Or maybe they, they own some real estate that happened to appreciate. But to say that the president is somehow responsible for an economic boom for the bottom half of wage earners, it's nonsense. And he's talking about the fact that, that Americans have the highest real medium household income in history. Now, they may have the highest nominal household income in history, but it's certainly not in real terms. And one of the reasons that household income is higher is because more members of the household are working. They have jobs. In fact, one statistic that the president actually got right, because I've heard this statistic uh, from other sources, is that now, for the first time ever in America, we have more women working than men. And Trump said this is like, it's a great thing. Like, this shows how strong our economy is, that more women are now working than men. Except the opposite is evidenced by that fact. Because if you look at most households uh, where they have children, the desirable situation for most people is that the woman not be employed when there are young children at home. I mean, most mothers, if they had the choice, if their husband made enough money, most married women with children would choose not to be in the workforce. They would rather stay at home and raise the children and take care of the house. But when economic circumstances are such that they no longer have that luxury, where they're forced to go and earn a paycheck because their husband's paycheck isn't large enough after taxes to keep the family's you know, economic head above water, when women are being forced into the workforce, that is a sign that the economy is weakening. It's when men are able to earn enough money so that their wives don't have to work, that's the sign of a growing economy, right? When women are liberated from the drudgeries of employment 
And not that, you know, housework is all, is all that great, but for the whole, you know, family unit, that is what most people would consider ideal. And even for some people, okay, maybe the woman is going to be the breadwinner. Okay, the guy uh, can take care of the house. Most people would prefer at least one of the spouses. And in typical households, it's the woman. The, the woman would prefer to stay at home and the guy would prefer that he go out and, and his wife stayed home. I mean, that is just uh, human nature. But the fact that so many women no longer have that choice is not something that Trump should be bragging about or trying to take credit for the fact that more women are working. What if what if the economy got so bad that kids had to drop out of school and start working? What if we had, you know, a big increase in child labor? Would, you, would the president want to brag about that? Hey, we got more kids working now than ever before. Right. More, more, you know, more, more elementary school uh, kids are dropping out so they can get so they can get jobs. I mean, it would be good if young people got jobs, you know, the way they used to so they can learn uh, something about entrepreneurship and about, you know, work ethic and things like that. But to say, you know, it, that it's a sign of prosperity that they're required to work just so their family can pay the rent and put food on the table. That is not a good thing. But another problem with what Trump is saying is that one of the reasons that so many men are not working is because the jobs that have been destroyed during the Trump presidency are the types of jobs that are dominated by men, which is manufacturing, goods producing jobs. Those are the type of jobs where you have a, a more men than women. And since we're losing a lot of manufacturing jobs, more men are being put out of work. See, women are more active in the service sector, in a lot of the lower paying service sector jobs, the type of jobs that were being created when Obama was president. And those are the same type of jobs that are being created when Trump is president. And so that's why the, the number of women working has surpassed the number of men working because the male dominated industries have done so much worse than the ones that are you know, more dominated by females or more heavily represented by female workers. Yet that flies in the face of what Trump is saying about the manufacturing boom, about all the manufacturing jobs that he is creating. If he was creating a lot of manufacturing jobs, those jobs would be dominated by men. More men would be going into manufacturing to fill those jobs. It's not happening because the jobs are not happening. They're not really there. In fact, Trump, in his speech, he said that nobody is benefiting more from his presidency than the middle class, which is clearly not true. It is asset owners. It is people at the very top end of the spectrum, the 1%, the people that have large stock portfolios. At least on paper, they're benefiting. In reality, they're not actually benefiting because this bubble is going to pop and whatever money they thought they had is going to go to the money heaven. Uh, and, you know, but so... That's the beneficiary. But to say that the middle class is benefiting the most, they're not. There has not been a, a big change in, in the standard of living. You know, he's acting as if we've got this great booming standard of living. This is unprecedented. It's not even close. But, you know, I saw an interview that, that Trump did today from Davos with Joe Kernan on, on CNBC. And again, that interview, it's all filled with a bunch of nonsense. And Joe Kernan is too in awe of Trump to call him out on it. Or maybe he just 
isn't smart enough to call him out on it. I don't know. He, he just eats this stuff up. But Trump, again, talked about this manufacturing boom that is not happening. I mean, we've gone through a manufacturing recession. Obviously, we're not having a boom in manufacturing. You know, he talked again about the China deal and the USMCA being the best and the biggest deals ever, the greatest deals ever, when these deals don't really amount to anything at all. You know, the, uh, the USMCA is very similar to NAFTA. I mean, the only real difference, I think, substantive difference is there's some more protectionism built into it for American labor unions. So uh, it may mean that some of the costs of production, some of the labor costs may be higher as a result of the USMCA, which means that consumer prices will end up being higher. But if you're talking about a trade deal and the net impact of the trade deal is that consumers end up paying higher prices for the goods that they're trading for, how is that a win? How is that a great improvement over NAFTA if the main difference between the two is that consumer prices will be a little higher because this trade deal is less free uh, than the deal that it, that it replaced? But to say that it's the greatest deal in history and that NAFTA is the worst deal ever, and the, the deals are, you know, very much similar deals, it's all hyperbole. But, you know, he just sits there and, and, and spouts this stuff out. But some of the more, you know, comical, I guess, aspects of the whole thing. Uh, one, uh, they talked about negative interest rates. And again, Donald Trump re-asked the question to Joe Kernan, right? The same question that he posed rhetorically at the signing ceremony for the, the, the China phase one deal, he said that, you know, I wish I knew who these people were who were dumb enough to buy these negative yielding bonds. I mean, he wants to borrow at negative interest rates. He just doesn't know who would be dumb enough to buy those bonds. And he's still wondering. And of course, Joe Kernan could have answered the question for him, but he didn't answer it. The answer is obvious. It's the ECB. It's the Bank of Japan. It's only because foreign central banks are buying these bonds that anybody else would buy them. So basically what Trump wants is for the Federal Reserve to be really dumb, right, and commit the American taxpayer basically to buying negative yielding bonds so that he can sell them, so that he or other people can borrow at negative rates. But the funniest thing about it is he told Joe Kernan the reason that he wanted negative yields. He said, I want negative yields so we can pay off the national debt. See, if we only had negative interest rates, we can pay off the national debt. How? Does he think the yields are going to be so negative that the government is actually going to get paid all this negative interest? And then we're going to take that negative interest and, and, and pay off the national debt? It's, it's the opposite. The, the reason that Trump wants negative rates is so the U.S. government can borrow even more money. That's the reality. You want negative rates so you can take on additional debt. He says he wants negative rates so we can pay off the debt we have. If he wants to pay off the debt we have, just pay it off. In fact, if the Federal Reserve wanted to force Donald Trump to actually do what he claims he wants to do but isn't doing, the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates. See, it's higher interest rates that would force governments to pay off debt because they wouldn't be able to afford the higher rate of interest. The lower the rate of interest, the easier it is for the government to take on more debt. So Donald Trump is saying he wants negative rates, which only benefit you if you're taking on more debt. Now, yes, they do make it easier for you to service the debt you already have, 
but that means there's less of a reason to pay it off, right? Because as rates go down, then the debt you already have is less expensive. But if rates went up, that debt would become a more of a burden, and therefore you would have a greater incentive to pay it down to reduce that burden. What Trump wants is the Federal Reserve to create a bigger incentive not to pay off the debt and to make it easier to take on even more debt. Another part of the interview, and it was like a 20-minute interview, and you can see the whole thing on YouTube. I mean, I'm not making any of this stuff up, right? I mean, it actually actually happened. So Joe Kernan asked him, are you going to do anything about the debt? Right? I mean, are you going to pay down the debt maybe in your second term? I mean, are you going to uh, raise taxes or cut spending to deal with the debt? And Donald Trump's answer was, no, 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 I'm going to cut taxes again. So in other words, he was asked, what is he going to do about tackling the growing debt? And he basically said, I'm going to cut taxes again, which is really going to add to the debt. Now, he went back and he said that we're collecting more revenue now than we were collecting before he cut taxes, which probably is true. But we're collecting less revenue than we might otherwise have collected if we hadn't cut taxes, because, you know, we're, we're going to get more money just by inflation, right? And, and, you know, even adjusted for inflation. But the fact of the matter is, when the Republicans and Trump initially uh, passed the tax cuts, they said that they would pay for themselves by making the deficit smaller. The deficits are much bigger now, after we have the tax cuts, than they were before. And now he's Trump has asked specifically, okay, so it didn't work out the way you planned, so are you going to cut spending, or now are you going to raise taxes? And his answer is, we're just going to cut taxes again. And didn't even talk at all about, yeah, I guess we're going to have to cut some spending. So in other words, Trump is saying, we're not going to do anything about the national debt. Even though the national debt got bigger when we expected it to go down, we don't care. We're just going to cut rates again. But then he tries to pretend that he would do something about the national debt if only we have negative interest rates. But because we don't have negative interest rates, because they're just really, really low, and even though they're actually negative in real terms, he's going to do nothing about the debt. He's simply going to wait until we have negative interest rates and then pay off the debt. No, if we had negative interest rates, he would take on even more debt. The debt would be growing even faster than it already is. But then related to the debt, Joe Curtin finally asked him this question, you know, at the end of the interview. And he was like very reluctant. He almost apologized in advance for asking the question. And he said, you know, do you ever intend to do anything about entitlements or is that just, you know, is that just, uh, you know, never going to be part of the agenda, right? Like, and, and Trump was said, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you know, we're waiting for the right time to do something about entitlements. Waiting for the right time, been in office for three years. The right time was during the first year or two when he had more political capital and when the Republicans still had control uh, of, of the House of Representatives. So, I mean, it's going to be harder now, and especially in an election year. I mean, if you couldn't tackle entitlements the year after the election, you certainly can't do it the year of the election. So to say that he's waiting for the right time is nonsense. He's never going to do it. And then in, as part of his answer, he then said, yeah, we'll get to entitlements because that's going to be easy. Oh, this is no problem. It's an easy fix. And he said the reason it's going to be so easy to fixing the entitlement problem is he said because the, we're having a boom like we've never had in, in history. This is the greatest boom. We've never had an economy this strong. We've never been creating wealth like this. We've never been creating assets like this. And so because we have this boom in the U.S. economy, uh, it's going to be so easy to tackle uh, entitlements. When none of this is true, 
if we actually had a boom in the U.S. economy, the, the deficits would be coming down on their own. In every normal economic boom, tax receipts come up because all these people are making a lot of money in the boom and they're paying more in taxes during the boom. And fewer people need government assistance, government safety nets. You don't have to spend as much on food stamps, on welfare and things like that, unemployment. So normally when you have a booming economy, you see the evidence of the boom uh, in the government accounts, right? But we, we see the opposite. Even though they're claiming the economy is booming, the budget deficit is also booming. That's not something that happens when the economy is good. That's something that happens when the economy is bad. Same thing about corporate earnings. Last year, corporate earnings declined, declined. So we have a booming economy, yet corporations are earning less money. How is that a boom? Where is there ever a boom where corporations are earning less, not more? They should be earning more money if the economy was booming. Now, the market may be booming because it's a bubble, but that doesn't mean the economy is booming. That doesn't mean we're creating real wealth. We have paper wealth. Stock prices are higher, but that's all part of the delusion. None of that actually means anything because those prices are temporary. They can come crashing down a lot faster than, uh, than they went up. So again, Trump is not telling the truth. The reason that they're not dealing with entitlements is because it's hard, because it's politically impossible to do it uh, without pissing people off because you've got to cut government spending. And Trump doesn't want to cut any government spending. He just wants to pretend that we have an economic boom of such a great magnitude that we can afford all this government. That there's no need to cut anything because we have this great economic miracle and he wants to take credit for all of it. And, you know, the Republicans want to give him credit because it serves uh, their political narrative. Sure, Wall Street, yeah, they want to pretend that all this growth is real. They don't want to admit that it's another bubble, because if it's a bubble, then it's going to pop because, you know, all bubbles pop. You know, in that perspective, though, you actually have a lot of people on Wall Street who think the bubble's never going to pop. You know, there was a, a one of the um, top guys at Bridgewater, who's also there at Davos, gave an interview on CNBC and basically said that he thought the, the boom and bust business cycle is a thing of the past, that we're never going to have another downturn, that it's just going to be a permanent uh, prosperity, right? And and the reason for that is it says that, you know, prior uh, booms have always stopped because the Fed raises rates too much and then you have a recession and the market comes down. But since we're never going to get another rate hike, since the Fed is going to keep rates low forever, well, then the boom is going to go on forever. Oh my God, why didn't they think of that in the past? Just never raise interest rates and the party's always going to rage, right? Let's, trees can grow to the sky. You know, th the reason that, they raised interest rates in the past is because at least they knew that if they didn't, it would be worse. They would have runaway inflation. Uh, they would have a currency crisis. So they have to end their own party. They, they get the party started. They get everybody liquored up and then they take the punch bowl away and they create the business cycle. It's not a natural flow of capitalism. This is not something that would happen in a free market. This cycle was a byproduct of government manipulation of the free market, but at least politicians or bankers of the past knew enough to end the party before it completely got out of hand and they destroyed the entire system, right? But now what they're saying is, oh, since we're never going to have to raise interest rates again, we're never going to have a bear market again. We're never going to have a recession again. No, it means we're going to have something much worse than a typical bear market or a typical recession. We're going to have a currency crisis, right? We're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. We're going to have hyperinflation. You know, all of these so-called experts who 
before the 2008 financial crisis. None of these guys knew that the crisis was coming. They were all completely oblivious. They thought everything was great, right? They couldn't have been more wrong about that. But then after the crisis completely surprised them and the Fed came to the rescue by creating an even bigger problem, right? Those same people then believed the Fed that they had solved the problem, that everything was great because of QE and because of 0% interest rates. And they also believed that the Fed was going to be able to reverse policy, normalize interest rates, and uh, shrink their balance sheet. Now, I never believed that, but, but these clowns on Wall Street believed it. Now that the Fed surprised them by doing exactly what I said they would, right? They, they, they gave up their feigned attempt at normalization of rates. They stopped quantitative tightening and now are expanding the balance sheet again, except they're not admitting that it's quantitative easing, but that's exactly what it is. Those same people who were now surprised by that turn of events are now embracing it as if it's great. Like this is good news, right? It's not good news. It is bad news. The fact that the Fed couldn't normalize rates is bad news. The fact that the Fed couldn't shrink its balance sheet is bad news. They don't know it yet. They think it's great news because it's making the market go up. But what it is going to prove to the world is that there is no exit strategy from these policies. There is no way back to normal. We have made a deal with the devil. They just don't realize that the devil is going to collect, right? And he's going to collect a lot more than we bargained for because the only reason that we didn't have a dollar crisis last time, the only reason we didn't have runaway inflation is because everybody believed the Fed, that it was temporary, that they were going to normalize rates, that they were going to shrink their balance sheet. When everybody accepts the fact that that is never going to happen because it can't happen, because the Fed has created an economy that is so addicted and dependent to cheap money that they can never withdraw that drug without a complete implosion, once people accept what they should have understood years and years ago like I did, well, then there's nothing to stop the dollar from collapsing. Once it starts to fall, it's going to be a bottomless pit. Once gold starts to go up, it's never going to stop. And then this party is going to come to a crashing end, and there's nothing the central bank can do about it. See, they can solve the problem of rising interest rates by printing money and buying bonds, so long as the dollar doesn't collapse, so long as people still want the money they're creating to buy the bonds that nobody wants. But when people don't want the dollars either, which is all the bonds are denominated in, there's nothing the Federal Reserve can do about it. The only way they can attempt to create value in the dollar is by raising interest rates high enough to make dollar-denominated debt appealing to the lender. But the problem with that is if they raise rates high enough to create demand for the lender, the borrower has no ability to satisfy uh, the, the demand because they, they can't make the payments. We can't afford to pay creditors enough money to get them to lend us money. That is the box that we're in. But probably one of the one of the, the comments that, that Trump made, and you know, I don't know if if it really is as bad as it may seem, and I, I see some people are, are are making fun of him. He was asked a question about Elon Musk. And, you know, by the way, his stock um, Tesla is on a tear. I mean, this is the shorts are getting squeezed big time in Tesla. This thing is going straight up. Uh, the question is, when is the great you know, entry point for new shorts to come in. But a lot of the people who have been short this stock, and it clearly is dramatically overvalued, 
Uh, and it's one of the most heavily, in fact, I think it is the most heavily shorted stock in the U.S. And, and the shorts are being put through the grinder right now. And again, I think this is more uh, evidence uh, of, you know, the blow off phase. You know, when you have people coming out and saying we've reached a permanent uh, plateau of permanently high stock prices like in 1929. And, you know, by the way, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the dot com bubble popped uh, quite a bit before the overall Nasdaq bubble popped. And so I think the popping of the uh, the private equity bubble with the WeWork uh, is a similar event. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that the overall Nasdaq is making making new highs. And in fact, another statistic which flies in the face of Trump's booming economy like we've never seen before, we have more money losing companies in the S&P 500. A higher percentage of S&P stocks, S&P 500 companies are losing money today than, um, you know, in, in, in 2000. Or public, maybe it's publicly traded companies. I don't know if it was. I don't. I forget if it was limited to the S and P. It might be the entire uh, New York Stock Exchange. But we have a higher percentage, let's say, of listed companies losing money today than in 2000, which just means it's a bigger bubble. But if this really was an unprecedented economic boom, wouldn't those money losing companies be making money? I mean, wouldn't you think if we had the greatest economy ever, that it would be easier for corporations to generate profits in that great economy? The fact that they're not, the fact that companies haven't been losing this much money since, you know, the last bubble that, that ended badly, that, that that should be evidence. But getting back to, to what I was about to say, so on the Elon Musk uh, conversation, then Trump went into, uh, you know, started talking about the fact that we have to protect our inventors, our geniuses. You know, a guy like um, like Musk is very creative. You know, he's like a, a modern day Thomas Edison, right? And we have to protect guys like that when they come up with inventions. And so he mentioned some of the, you know, he said, we have to protect Thomas Edison when, you know, you invent things like the light bulb or the wheel. So, you know, after he's talked about the light bulb, which Edison, you know, did invent, he then threw out the wheel. And the whole thing was that he, the statement was about Americans and how the U.S. government has to protect our geniuses who are inventors like Thomas Edison for inventions like uh, the light bulb and the wheel. Now, the question was, did Donald, Donald Trump mean that Edison invented the wheel? Which obviously he did not. I mean, the wheels existed for many, many thousands of years before America uh, even came into existence. But if you listen to it, 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 it's like Donald Trump believes that either it was Edison who invented the wheel or some other American, as if there were no wheels on the planet until someone in America thought one up and got the patent on the wheel. And, and then we protected that patent uh, using our laws. I mean, nobody has a patent on the wheel. But again, this is just typical of the type of stuff that, that Trump says. Because when he talks about that the U.S. economy is booming like it's never boomed before, that makes as much sense as saying that we invented the wheel. Because neither are true. But it doesn't stop Trump from saying it. He just says whatever comes to mind, regardless of how ridiculous it may be. And he doesn't get challenged. And the biggest problem here and I've said this before, but I, I probably can't say it enough, is when the Republicans make the mistake of accepting all this and just letting Trump get away with all of these false claims about how great the economy is now and how it's his fault, right? That the economy we have today is a direct result of deregulation and tax cuts and all these great things that he claims to have done. The problem is, 
when this illusion is revealed for what it is, when this bubble pops in a more spectacular manner than the bubble of 2000 or 2008, and when we find ourselves in an even greater recession than the Great Recession of you know, 2008, what are the voters going to think? Who are the voters going to blame? And what are the voters going to think of capitalism when Trump is the face of it? And when the Democrats can point to the disaster and say, well, Trump, it's all Trump, right? It's all uh, Republicans. It, this is what happens when you, when, when you have too much uh, you know, capitalism. You know, when you cut taxes on the rich and you cut regulations, you produce a massive collapse. Right? So we are just basically teeing this ball up for the socialists to hit it out of the park. And if you want to see how scary these socialists are, look at this uh, interview that uh, AOC, right, Asasha Cortez, did on Martin Luther King Day. There's this two-hour, three, four, four hours, actually, four-hour uh, YouTube video, and she's right in the middle, around two, two hours into it. You can see this uh, interview with, with AOC. And by the way, Bernie Sanders, I've been talking about the rise of Bernie Sanders. People have been dismissing him. He is now uh, number one in the national poll. CNN came out with a national poll today. And for the first time ever, Sanders is in the lead. Biden is in second place. Now, of course, the Democratic establishment does not like this, right? They're trying to take down Bernie Sanders again, just like they took him down last time. Uh, and because I think they're they're worried about him because, you know, he's, he could be a loose cannon because he actually believes this nonsense. Right. This guy has believed this stuff his whole life. I mean, the, 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 the Democratic establishment has to know uh, that socialism, communism is a complete disaster, but they just want to appeal to a lot of voters who don't know that. So they can't really attack Sanders as being too far to the left and too radical without alienating their base. So they kind of have to attack him as being white or being a, a, a sexist, right? Or a homophobe or whatever they want to do. They have to make him into a bad guy. They can't attack his policies because, you know, they're afraid to do that. So they have to try to somehow attack him uh, because they, you know, they're, they know that if he actually wins, you know, he actually has some principles. They're bad principles, but he's got them. Right. Some of the other, you know, more professional candidates, sure, they'll, they'll be willing to talk to talk about big government and free this and free that. But once they get elected, they're going to be more responsible. They're you know, they just want to get reelected. That's all they care about. They don't really care about the country. Sanders probably cares. It's unfortunate. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And Sanders has good intentions. But believe me, you know, we would go right to hell. We would all be feeling the burn. Uh, if uh, Sanders actually becomes president. In fact, the people who are going to burn the most are the people who vote for the guy, actually believing that their lives are going to improve if they, you know, if the America becomes a socialist country. But look at this interview. Listen to this interview with AOC. Because uh, Ocasio-Cortez has just basically completely swallowed the Marxist line, you know, hook, line, and sinker. She is a complete Marxist. That's what she is. This is the idiocy of what she believes, right? Because she's talking, uh, having an interview, and this one guy was saying, well, you know, um, what about, you know, a billion, you know, the billionaires or the entrepreneurs that make the widgets? I mean, don't they contribute something to society? I mean, isn't there something good to say about them? 
And then she basically says, no, they didn't make those widgets. They just sit on the couch. The workers make the widgets. They just exploit the workers, underpay the workers, and they generated their wealth off the backs of the workers, right? They, they stole it from the workers. So she said, nobody makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars, which is complete nonsense. The entrepreneur isn't taking anything. He is giving. He is creating. He is enabling workers, right, to have higher productivity. That's what jobs are all about. It's not like anybody who takes a job, right? They're not forced to take a job. If they think they could create more productivity for themselves, they could be self-employed. You know, uh, she also said when she was talking, she said that, you know, we should have an economy where workers are allowed to own the businesses, where workers are allowed to have cooperatives where they own their own businesses. They are. There's, they can do that if they want to. There's nothing, there's no law that prevents a group of workers from banding together and creating their own business. If that's what they want to do, if they want to take that risk, if they want to give up the security of a paycheck, which is what they would have to do. See, most people don't want to gamble, right? They don't want to take a risk. They want to know if they show up and do the work that they're assigned to do, that they're going to get paid, right? That's what happens when you get a job. You, you know, you're saying, hey, I'm just going to sell you my labor right? I don't want to start a business. I don't want to work for profits because I may not get any, right? When somebody starts a business, they don't have a paycheck. They may not make any money at all. In fact, the idea that AOC has that business owners just sit on a couch all day and just let the money roll in because she's never run a business. She has no idea that the hardest workers in a business are the people who own them. In fact, a lot of businesses start off where the only worker is the owner, it's a one-man shop, and they work 16-hour days. And as they expand, then they start to hire more people, right? You don't just hire all those people right away. You have to build up. It takes a long time to build up a big business, right? But when AOC says, you know, we ought to have worker-owned businesses, the reason we don't have them is because they don't want them or they don't have the competence to do it. They, they could do a job if they're assigned to do it. But the typical factory worker, oh, let's say you have some guys that are you know, working on a factory building widgets, right? Why don't they just quit and go create their own widget company and make their own widget? Well, they don't know how to do that. They don't, they, they don't have those skills. They can perform a function that they've been trained to do. And if they're assigned, here's your job, you do this, you show up at, at nine in the morning and you do this work until five and then you can go home, that they can do. But if they had to actually start the whole thing from scratch, they would have the vaguest idea what to do. And they don't have the capital. They don't have the savings. Because the reason that workers are more productive when they accept a job than working on their own is because their employer provides them with capital, tools, right, that, that increase their productivity that they don't have themselves. And so when you take a job, it's because you can use the late the capital that your employer is providing you to earn more money than you would earn if you had to provide the capital yourself. So that's why the workers aren't already doing it. But what AOC wants, it's not about workers having the right to start their own businesses, which they could do whatever they want. What she's talking about is workers stealing the businesses that have already been developed by the entrepreneur, meaning that you have a guy who starts a business, right? doesn't know if he's going to make money or lose money. He risks his life savings. 
Maybe he mortgages his house. He takes on some credit card debt, starts a business, works his ass off, right? And then finally succeeds. And he builds up this big business that's working and generating profits. And now finally he can relax a little bit, maybe spend a little bit more time on the couch and harvest the fruits of his hard-earned labor. What AOC wants to do is then allow the voters, the workers at gunpoint to then say, aha, you didn't deserve this. We're stealing this business from you. We're stealing the means of production in the name of the workers. That's what she's advocating. She wants workers to organize and use their power as voters to steal the wealth of the people who earned it, right? That's communism. That's what she is advocating. And she is the hero of the Democratic Party. They think she's some kind of, you know, giant, intellectual giant in the party. She is a midget, intellectual midget. She doesn't know anything. She's just spouting off a bunch of nonsense that has clearly never worked. In fact, if you listen to what she said, she says that she wants to build a modern economy, that what we have now is not modern. It's, it's dying. It's capitalism. It's like slavery or mercantilism, that we're just a stepping stone to, to, to Marxism, right? She thinks this society that she envisions where there are no entrepreneurs, there are no capitalists, there's just the workers, right? And they just earn everything. And, you know, we, we just get rid of those lazy uh, business owners who sit back on, on couches. She thinks that Marxism is some kind of improvement, that a, a, a Marxist society is an advanced society. No, a Marxist society is a primitive society. You, you adopt those principles and you destroy your, your economy. And, and, you know, and you go back to the Stone Age. Look at all the countries that have fallen for this nonsense. You think they're advanced? People are starving you know, in those countries. You know, she wants to go backwards to ideas that have failed every time they've tried. Capitalism was a move forward, right? Limited government freedom, you know, that was an advancement. You know? But she doesn't get that. She is completely clueless. You know, she also talked about how she wants people to be empowered. She says that people need to have power in the democracy. People already have the power. What she wants to do is take the power away from the people and invest it in the government. See, right now in a free market economy, in a capitalist economy, the people have all the power, right? You choose what you want to do. Do you want to accept a job, right? And which job do you choose to accept? Or do you want to start your own business? And which type of business do you want to start? These are choices that everybody has, right? Most people choose to accept a job because that's the easy road, right? Yes, there's greater reward if you take the hard road of starting your own business, uh, but, you know, there's a big risk there that it won't work. So a lot of people choose the easier road, right? The road more traveled, which is let me get a job. But then, of course, you could choose which job you want, right? You get to interview. You get to pick your best option. Nobody can force you. No one employer can force you to take a job. The employer has to entice you into taking that job by offering you a better deal than another employer, either higher wages, better fringe benefits, right? More time off, a better work environment. You're, you're in the driver's seat in a free market. The same thing when it comes to being a consumer, right? In a capitalist society, the customer is always right. You think the customer is ever right in a socialist society? No, <laughs> they're always wrong. The government is always right. When you are the customer, right, you choose. No businessman can force you to buy their product or use their service. They have to win your business. How do they do that? By providing you with a better product 
or better services than somebody else. So you choose to do business. So when you're talking about uh, empowering the people, that's what capitalism does, like no other economic system. It puts the people in power, the customer. We have an entire society generated on improving the lives of ordinary people. That's how you get rich in a capitalist system, by making ordinary people's lives better. What better system could you possibly ask for? What AOC wants to do is destroy that system. She wants to take all that power of the market that the people have, take it away and give it to the government. So the government now decides what kind of job you have, what kind of work you do. You know, the government decides what you can buy, what products you can have, right? No, and that, that's a disaster. So she wants to empower the people. She wants to destroy the power that the people have. She wants to empower the government and enslave the people. But the point is, the more we pretend that we have a booming economy thanks to Trump, the more likely we make it that these idiotic ideas gain traction and actually get adopted in the United States. So that's why it makes me so angry. And people say, oh, we have to pretend that everything is so good because we can't admit that there's a problem because maybe Trump won't get reelected. So let's just go along with this BS. That was why we got Obama, because we made the same mistake when Bush was president. Only now it's an even bigger bubble. And when this one pops and the capitalism gets unfairly blamed again, we're going to get somebody much, much worse uh, uh, than, than, than Obama was. We'll get somebody like Bernie Sanders, and there may not be coming back for that. So I believe in telling the truth all the time, right? Because that is ultimately the best thing that you could do. And then you have credibility. Then you have, you know, a reason to say, hey, here is what we need to do, right? Free market capitalism does work. The problem is we haven't used it. We haven't tried it. What was done under Trump was not an example of what we would get in a real capitalist economy. It was more of the same crap that we had when Obama was there, when Bush was there. We never had a booming economy. We just had a bigger, fatter, uglier bubble. But I want to finish off the podcast. I, I got a comment uh, about what happened with my Bitcoin wallet. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, stuff online. I've read a lot of articles. You know, I saw a story in Bloomberg, in, 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 uh, in, in Forbes. Uh, Yahoo Finance. I mean, all sorts of publications are writing about this. There's a lot of discussion about it on Twitter. And, you know, a lot of people are very upset at me or they think I'm making this stuff up. But anyway, if you don't know what happened. So I had a, a Bitcoin wallet and I got this wallet. I went out to dinner with Eric Voorhees a couple of years ago. We did a debate uh, at the Soho Forum uh, about Bitcoin, Bitcoin versus gold. And you can see the whole debate online. You know, it's on YouTube. It's very, it's very popular. I think over half a million people have, have watched the debate. And anyway, so after the debate, we went out to dinner. And I admitted to Eric, you know, I didn't have a Bitcoin wallet. I never bought any Bitcoin. So he said, oh, let me show you how easy it is. I'm going to set up a wallet for you. And he set one up on blockchain.com. And then he handed me back my phone. He took my phone. He set up my wallet. And then he handed me the phone and said, you got to put in a password or a PIN. So I, I put one in. And I just used one that is very easy for me to remember because I use that exact password uh, for other, other things. I don't use the same password for everything, but it's one that I've used for a few things. And so I, I knew I would always remember it, and I, and I, and I do. And so I, I picked the password. Anyway, so I've used that password uh, to access my wallet for the last couple of years. Now, what happened was after I got those Bitcoin, I, I had a wallet now, and I was at a conference, and somebody gave me some... Bitcoin Cash and some Ether 
into that wallet. They just transferred over to me. And so now I had like a hundred bucks worth of cryptocurrencies. I had three. So I was doing another debate at Freedom Fest on a panel and I was sitting next to Jeffrey Tucker. And I, I mentioned to Jeffrey Tucker that, hey, now I've got Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Ether that I actually own some cryptocurrency. I told him that it was an insignificant amount, 100 bucks worth that I had been gifted, but I let him know that I didn't own owned it. Anyway, so then Jeffrey Tucker does a, an interview somewhere on the radio. And he mentions, oh, you know, I was talking to Peter Schiff and he admitted to me that he owns Bitcoin, he owns Bitcoin Cash, he owns Ether. And so all of a sudden it starts going around the internet that I'm just a secret you know, hodler, that I, that I own all this Bitcoin, that I believe in Bitcoin secretly for myself. But the reason I publicly bash it is because I perceive it as a threat to my gold business. So I really know it's a great idea, right? And I'm buying all I can personally, uh, but I'm just telling other people not to. Uh, and another, other people thought that I was saying that to keep the price down. Like I'm trying to bash Bitcoin so the price goes down so I can keep buying it, right? All this is a bunch of nonsense. So anyway, I finally responded to that on Twitter by saying, look, I got like a hundred bucks worth. That's it. I got it as a gift, right? So then Anthony Pompliano, uh, also known as Pomp, he reaches out to me on Twitter and says, hey, what's your, what's your wallet address? I'll give you a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. I was like, oh, okay. So I found the address of that wallet. It took me a while because I had never really given it out. And I initially got the wrong address. So I put the address up there and Pomp never gave me any Bitcoin. I asked him and he said, no, I, I never did it. But a hundred other people or so gave me donations. So all of a sudden I had like $2,500 worth of Bitcoin in this wallet, right? And I checked the value every once in a while to see, you know, what they're worth, you know, see how it's doing. Uh, and so the last time I went to check, which was just a few days ago, my password didn't work. Now, I, I didn't forget the password. I didn't lose it. I mean, I didn't write it down. I didn't have to. I chose something that, that, that's very simple. And, um, and obviously, there wasn't a lot of money there. So I wasn't that concerned about somebody cracking my password. But that didn't happen. My password wasn't working. I was inputting the exact same password into my wallet that I had been using every day since I first got it. So I, I contacted the, the owners or they reached out to me, uh, blockchain.com, to try to help me solve my problem. And we went back and forth for a while and they had me reinstall the app and I tried uh, accessing my wallet through my laptop. I, I took out an old Android phone and it was very frustrating because I kept insisting that I knew my password but they, it, I just kept getting the error message that my password was wrong. And then finally, based on all the going back and having me describe everything, the people at blockchain.com were able to get to the bottom of what actually happened. And it wasn't that my password stopped working. I had confused my PIN for my password. You see, when uh, the wallet was first set up for me, the only thing I remembered was my pin. I didn't remember the password, let alone the seed phrase, which is 12 words. I didn't get that either. The only thing I remember choosing was a pin. And apparently I was confusing the pin for the password. But what happened is that when the wallet gets updated uh, to account for changes or they allow new cryptocurrencies, you get logged out of your wallet and now you have to log back in. But once you get logged out, you can't log back in with your PIN. You have to log back in with your password. But I had been logged in the entire time I had it 
from day one, the first time that that wallet was set up on my phone, uh, I had been logged in. And so every time in the past that I've opened that app, all I've had to do was put in my PIN. I didn't realize that I wasn't putting in my password. I didn't really know the difference between the PIN and the password because the only thing I had ever used was the PIN. And so I've been going around on the line saying my password didn't work. It's not my password that didn't work. It was my PIN that stopped working. So basically, there were three things that I needed to memorize or write down, my PIN, my password, and my seed phrase. And I only had one out of three. And that was the problem. And that's why I no longer have any access uh, to uh, my, my Bitcoin. I, I don't know the password from my wallet. I only know the PIN. And I can't create a new wallet to retrieve the Bitcoin because I don't know the seed phrase. Right Now, a lot of people are making fun of me. Oh, this is my fault. And look, yes, did I, did I not appreciate all these aspects of the wallet? No, I didn't. I didn't realize all that. I know it now after I've already lost all the Bitcoin that I had in it. But again, the fact that you can make a mistake and not know everything that you need to know or that you can lose your password. See, I didn't lose my password. I just never knew what it was, right? I didn't forget it. In order to forget it, you have to know it. The only thing I ever knew was my pin. And I didn't forget that. I didn't lose it because you have to have it before you can lose it. It was never communicated to me when, when, when Eric Voorhees created the wallet. All I remembered was inputting a pin, and that's all I've ever used. But the reality of it is, because I made a mistake, I've lost all my Bitcoin, right? They're gone. And that is not a strength, right? That is, that is, a, that is a, a, a failure. That is a bug as far as I'm concerned. Now, there are a lot of people that want to say, oh, no, no. I mean, that's just, you know, if you lose the keys to your house, right? Well, yeah, if you lose the keys to your house, you get a new key made. You get a locksmith. You don't lose your house because you've lost your key. Or there are people that are telling me, well, it's like losing your wallet. If you lose cash, it's gone. That's true. But I don't carry all of my money around in my wallet for that very reason, right? Because I don't want to lose all of my money. Yeah, if I lose my wallet and I lose the small amount of money that I happen to be carrying it around, and if it was in cash, okay, I lost it. I lost all the Bitcoin I had. Right? You're not going to lose all the money in your bank account. Let's say you lose your PIN or you forget your PIN on your ATM machine. When you go down to your bank, they don't tell you, well, you're SOL. You lost your PIN. You don't get, you lost the money. No, they give you a new PIN. You know, you just show them your ID, right? And they let you make a new one, right? If you use your ATM card, you get a new one. You don't lose all your money if you make a mistake. I made a mistake in not understanding that I needed these extra codes, or Eric Voorhees made a mistake when he explained it to me, when he told me about it, when he set up my wallet, he didn't write stuff down and say, hey, put this uh, seed phrase in a safe place because you need to have it in case you know your wallet is updated. And oh, you need this password in addition to your PIN. The PIN is the only thing I remembered. But that is a, a, a problem for Bitcoin, and all I did is point it out. All I did is let people know what happened, right? I've lost my Bitcoin. Even if it was my fault, it was still something that happened to me. I wasn't trying to lose them. 
I didn't do it on purpose. It's not some publicity stunt. I'm not trying to make Bitcoin look bad. I'm not trying to sell gold. I'm simply updating the public on what happened to me. I had some Bitcoin that I got for free. People gave me the Bitcoin. I left them in that wallet so people could see it and see that I was holding it, that I still had it. And then I just let people know my personal experience, right? That now I don't have access to them. I didn't want to lose them. I had no idea that I didn't know the password. I didn't know that my PIN wasn't the password. I didn't even know about a seed phrase. Now I know about all that stuff now. Okay, now I'm even more educated about Bitcoin. And so if for some reason I decided I want to have another wallet, I'm going to make damn sure that I know that seed phrase or not that I know it because who can remember 12 words, 12 random words? Nobody can remember the seed phrase. So I'd make sure I'd have that, uh, you know, stored someplace safe. Well, where I couldn't lose it. Maybe I'd have several copies of it uh, stored around. Uh, and then, of course, I would make sure I knew my password uh, in addition to my PIN, right? So I would obviously, if I did it again, I, I would take even more precautions. But who's to say that those precautions will work? The problem is that there is a way for you to screw up, for you to make a mistake, and you've lost all your Bitcoin. And that is a flaw. That is, you know, that is a bug that in, in the system that makes Bitcoin, you know, even less of a store of value. I mean, it's not a store of value uh, from an economic standpoint because it has no value to store, right? It's just, it's, it's just the value is simply what people are willing to pay for it, right? It's not money in the sense that gold is money. I mean, money by definition is the most liquid commodity. It's the most marketable commodity. Bitcoin is not a commodity. It's nothing, right? Gold became money because it, was better suited to be a medium of exchange and a store of value than other commodities that could have been used as a medium of exchange or a store of value. But Bitcoin isn't a commodity at all. So it doesn't have any value to store. It doesn't matter if it can replicate other monetary properties that gold has. If it has no commodity properties, if it can't replicate the actual utility of gold, then it's not digital gold, right? But apart from that, if you can lose all of your Bitcoin with no ability to retrieve them, that is a negative. I mean, people want security to know that if they screw up, right? If they forget their 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 pin on their ATM or that you know they lose something, that they can get it back. That there's some security in knowing that there's some protection if you do something wrong, right? But here, I didn't have that, right? I did some things wrong, didn't know about it. And now I've lost all my Bitcoin. Now people want to say, hey, tough luck, right? That's that's the way it is, right? That's, uh, you know, you screw up and uh, you get punished. Well, a lot of people don't want to take that risk. They want to have a little bit more security, a little bit more confidence, knowing that there's some type of safety net for their life savings, right? That they can't just, just lose it all. And again, even if I've done these things, we don't know. Other things can happen. Other problems could happen uh, that would cause people to lose their Bitcoins or that would have somebody steal their Bitcoins, right? If you have other bank accounts, if somebody goes into your bank and, and steals the money that's that's there, there are some safeguards to protect you so that you can recover what's been stolen, you know, whether it's some type of guaranteed bank account or whether it's some type of insurance or other things that help protect uh, bank deposits, nothing protects a Bitcoin deposit. If that while it gets hacked, if those Bitcoins are stolen, they're gone, right? And so, you know, that is a problem 
that Bitcoin has. And the fact that I went public and mentioned that this happened to me, I mean, you have people who are all upset. They think, oh, you're just deliberately trying to undermine Bitcoin. I wasn't. I was just saying what happened. Now, now that I know the truth about how it all went down, I can kind of correct some of the misinformation where I just did not know the difference between a password and a PIN. But, but again, that's all part of uh, the problem. You know, I'm not, you know, super Bitcoin tech savvy. I understand that it's not money and that it's not going to work as a medium of exchange or a store of value. But I didn't know all of the nuances surrounding uh, the, the the passwords. I just assumed that what I had been entering all those years, or not all those years, but a couple of years, that what I was entering was my password. But it wasn't. It was my PIN. Mm-hmm.